Before you listen to this podcast, just a quick word on a special offer for new PTO subscribers. We have some free print and digital one-year subscriptions to the excellent Tribune magazine for new $8 patrons. New $5 patrons can get a 50% discount on a Tribune subscription, and until the end of February, all new $3 patrons can get a 60% discount on the Verso Books ebook of Mario Tronti's classic Workers and Capital. To take up these offers, go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. Hello and welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Leo Panich. We talked about the causes of Labour's defeat in the 2019 general election, the weaknesses of the Labour movement beyond the party and whether a Keir Starmer victory would portend a march back to the so-called political centre. If you'd like to hear the extended version of today's interview, then please consider becoming a supporter of the show. You can get access to extended versions of PTO episodes from $3 a month, which is just over £2. And by becoming a $5 supporter, you'll also get access to regular mini episodes on current affairs as well. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. Today's show is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon and also by Verso Books, who have a great many titles that might be of interest to listeners. One that you might like to check out is The Conservation Revolution by Bram Boucher and Robert Fletcher. Conservation needs a revolution. We need radical ideas for saving nature beyond the Anthropocene. The Conservation Revolution is a post-capitalist manifesto for conservation, a razor-sharp analysis of conservation and how to politicise its futures. Visit versobooks.com for more information. Leo Panich is Canada Research Chair in Comparative Political Economy and Distinguished Research Professor of Political Science at York University. Editor of the Socialist Register for more than 25 years, his many books include Working Class Politics in Crisis, The End of Parliamentary Socialism, and American Empire and the Political Economy of Global Finance. His forthcoming new book, co-authored with Colin Lees, is Searching for Socialism, a history of the Labour New Left from its origins in the inter-party struggles of the 1960s until today, which is out in April from Verso Books. I read the recent interview you did with Bhaskar Sankara in Jacobin, in which you suggested that there was perhaps good reason to think that Corbynism might well have been defeated in government, even if Labour had managed to win an, an election under Jeremy Corbyn. Due to the general weakness of, of the left that perhaps the Corbyn moment obscured to some extent in the UK and, and the failure of the leadership to democratise the party, although obviously we can talk about whether they could have done much better in the circumstances that they were in. Is your sense that, that perhaps a lot of the post-election autopsies of, of Labour's defeat that we've seen have tended to focus on factors such as Labour's Brexit position, 
Jeremy Corbyn's leadership style, the role of the media and so on. And that while those factors may be important, it has a kind of a tendency to obscure those deeper weaknesses that you were talking about. Well, I, I think uh, those factors, the three you mentioned, were crucial in the December devastating defeat, no question. And I would put the first of them, the Brexit conundrum and the confused Brexit policy that Corbyn was driven, I think most of all by Starmer, into articulating was the most important of those. People forget that in 2017, Labour's position was very clear. It was to accept the outcome of the referendum, but to then do all they could to negotiate a close and politically decent relationship, including on immigration, with the European Union, a customs union, the closest thing to a single market that would allow for some controls over the movement of capital uh, and the movement of labor, although a relatively open attitude to immigration. And above all, sustaining European human rights and labor rights until British legislation was of higher quality than that. And no one dissented from that in the 2017 election. And immediately afterwards, those who had, you know, like Giacomuna and others, had signed on to that position in the 2017 election began to backpedal and put a lot of pressure uh, on the Labour Party to support a second referendum. And Starmer, from the inside, was the one who pushed that hardest. And inevitably, as soon as a number of Labour MPs left, as they did in February 2019, the panic set in. Uh, the great fear that others would threaten to go constantly or actually go. And Corbyn ended up with this extremely confused position. It was sustained to some extent at the Labour Party conference so that he didn't have to go so far as to say that he would support a second referendum even before an election or that he would tell people to vote to stay in regardless of the outcome of that vote. So he was tongue-tied in debates with, with Johnson, being quite aware of the strength of feeling in the North, in labor seats, and yet his hands were tied by precisely those people in the parliamentary party who had tried to unseat him after his first leadership election. I think that was the main reason that labor did so badly. Your description of it seems to attribute all the pressure to senior figures in the Labour Party, people like Keir Starmer, and, and, but also you know, backbenchers like Chukra Munna. And obviously, much of the media played a role in this as well. But do you think it also reflected, the, the shift in position, I mean, also reflected a general hardening in the country at large, a, you know, a greater degree of polarisation around the question of Brexit that happened from 2017 to 2019, and also a hardening of Remain feeling amongst much of the membership? Yes, but I think that doesn't happen uh, of itself. That is, I think had you had a party, a parliamentary party, even a shadow cabinet, united behind Corbyn's position, which was 
in many ways, trying to sustain a close relationship with Europe while accepting the outcome of the referendum. Had they been presenting that to the Labour Party membership, to young people who quite understandably want a close relationship with Europe, to those people who want to ally with the European left in all kinds of ways, had that been put, and it was easy to be put, I think that would have shifted a lot of opinion among those who were driven, on the other hand, because of their sympathies for Europe, to, you know, to, to the position that one needed a second referendum. And I think that that was fundamental. What I'm saying is that had there been support for Corbyn's leadership inside the parliamentary party, the outcome, even amongst the views of the membership, and you could see at the party conference when the resolutions were put, the competing resolutions, those people who uh, were in favor staying in were prepared to support Corbyn's position. And McCluskey, who's was not the greatest of speakers, I was on a panel with him organized by United and Young Labour, and there must have been, I don't know, 100, 150 young people in the room. And McCluskey said to them, what are you? Are you leavers? Are you remainers? Or are you socialists? And as one person, they got up and applauded, gave him sustained applause. And there was a way to address this, therefore, as, look, uh, the important thing here is to be supporting a socialist leader of the Labour Party. That is the primary concern. And, you know, insofar as Corbyn was advocating an extremely close relationship with Europe, this was the only way to bridge a sensibility amongst working-class labor voters, which had been clear as early as 2012. This wasn't just a matter of the referendum. So, you know, I, I understand. It's possible that there was no way out, that the polarization inside the party was such, that whatever position Corbyn would have lighted on in the end would not have worked. But this one has been proven to have worked badly. And to see in this context, given how it was proven to have worked badly, Starmer uh, leading right now the in the polls for the new uh, party leadership is really quite astonishing, even in pragmatic terms, even among those who aren't socialists. You know, they're supposed to be clever electorally. Well, for heaven's sake, it proved to be disastrous, the position that he lighted on and was and, and was content with. Do you also think that that position was perhaps a contributing factor was also what was going on in the Conservative Party at the time? Because, you know, Brexit, when it's being implemented by Theresa May, looks a little bit different to Brexit when it's implemented by uh, what appears to be Boris Johnson, backed by the hardline members of, of, of the ERG. And mm -hmm. I, I wonder if that contributed to the sense that, you know, we absolutely must stop Brexit. It's simply a hard right wing project. And that that sort of softer position that was taken previously couldn't really fly in that context. Yeah, arguably, but that was all the more reason for supporting Corbyn's soft Brexit rather than a second referendum. You know, what people felt, working class voters in the North, there were all kinds of reasons they didn't like Corbyn, some of them very ugly, including he's an IRA supporter, he's a terrorist supporter, that kind of stuff, yeah, which I, is a product of... I heard some of that on the doorstep. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, the feeling was that uh, they'd been given the finger 
you know, it was, if you like, a rather crude sense of what is democracy. We were given the chance to vote, but we are being given the finger. So it is arguable that the big moment, the turning point, was when Theresa May held cross-party talks, of which Rebecca Long-Bailey was a central figure, in April after the deadline had passed. And uh, it seems to be possible that it could have been that she would have agreed to supporting what Corbyn was calling for by way of a close relationship, including with a single market, with you know a bit of room for maneuver on labor and capital, but above all, getting her to commit on labor and human rights. And that was a window. And there again, I think that opposition in the parliamentary party made that impossible. Given the outcome we've had, what May's deal was doing was kicking everything down the road until 2021-22. And that's what the Tory right was so upset about. And that would have given loads of room for her to keep on stumbling And that would have given a socialist-led Labour Party time to do the things it had not yet done, which was rebuild its base, which had so atrophied in the working-class constituencies of the country, and to do much more in terms of developing the capacity of the party, you know, which was hardly transformed in the period that, that Corbyn was leader. But, you know, that's that's all water under the bridge, and there's no doubt that other factors were at work. I do think that among those factors, the power of the media was enormous. That said, again, uh, I think the ease with which so many people in the parliamentary party were prepared, and I hope you don't mind me using this term, to leak into the public urinal against Corbyn was a tremendous factor in the way the media played him. And they rarely came to his defense, not only over anti-Semitism, which was, of course, absurd in terms of him personally, above all, but also in terms of these absurd charges that he was a terrorist supporter. All Corbyn did was call for talks with the Sinn Féin uh, 15 years before Major and, Cor- and, and, and Blair did. He should have been seen as far-sighted in trying to resolve the troubles of the Civil War in, in Northern Ireland. Yes, and of course there were also secret contacts before John Major as well. Of course there were, but even publicly, I mean, this was... So, you know, there wasn't simply enough done enough to defend him, so it comes back to that as well. On top of that, Jeremy is not Tony Benn. He is not a great speaker. He looked very uncomfortable in Parliament, you know, having pledged himself to what had always been the Labour New Left's position, that the leadership would be out campaigning rather than caught in the Westminster bubble. Between 2017 and 2019, he was really caught in the Westminster bubble, precisely because of his successes in 2017. By denying May a clear majority... It made the Labour Party, of course, a crucial vector inside Parliament. And this left Jeremy constantly seen by people only at the dispatch box. 
And let's face it, he's not terrific at this. You know, he himself told Hillary Wainwright and I, when we interviewed him, it was published in Red Pepper in 2016, that the great difference between Tony Benn and himself was that Tony was an unconventional politician who had a tremendous political career. He's an unconventional politician who has been a very unsuccessful career politician. And, you know, it showed. So all those were factors. In terms of the more profound ones you've raised, which is, was enough done to change the party? I think, obviously not. And, but I don't know that could have been done between 2017 and 2019. Uh, changing that lumbering elephant into a gazelle for radical democratic socialism, you know, is, is an enormous task. It's not as difficult as changing the British state will be, but it, it is a condition for changing the British state. And certainly a lot more could have been done. The campaign unit that was set up was important. The momentum taking all of the constituency seats on the NEC was important. And, and changing some of the people who were full-time staff was important, but not nearly enough was done. Moreover, on policy, the great difference between the Labour New Left in the 1970s and the resurrection of it under Corbyn in the second decade of the 21st century was that uh, the Labour Party at that time, under the leadership of the NEC, under Tony Benz and Eric Heffer's leadership of it, was a policy machine, a radical policy machine. There were some 80 committees inside the party headquarters, which were calling on experts in every conceivable field to be developing a alternative strategy, not only the alternative economic strategy, but much more broadly than that. And it was out of that, that, that famous phrase, which was used again in this election, a, a fundamental shift in the balance of class power in Britain. It was out of that that, that that phrase emerged by 1973. You got a lot of new policy developments out of the shadow cabinet that McDonald was leading in the last couple of years, but nothing out of the party. And that's not to say that I think Labour lost because of its policy. I, thought, I think that the manifesto in 2019 was a more progressive and more coherent one because of the way it got linked to the Green Industrial Revolution, than the 2017 was. That said, the way it was presented, which was as a series of bribes to working-class voters, you know, to look the Brexit thing aside, was not well done. But above all, what it shows is that either in terms of developing policy inside the party or being able to translate that down at the base, so that working-class voters have a real sense of why this matters. That capacity had not been developed, but I'm not sure it could have been by 2019. Regarding the policy in the base, I mean, it, it felt, you know, it felt very much as if, you know, something like the Green New Deal, that we were explaining a, a core part of the programme in a context where even the membership didn't really know much about it and have a great deal of, yeah. of understanding of it, really. And so how on earth we were going to win in the country if, if our own party, <laughs> you know, was, was yeah. sort of barely, barely conversant with, with the policy it, itself. It came very late, actually. Yeah. And yeah. It, I think it was induced by the move in uh, the Sanders AOC 
wing of the Democratic Party in that direction to really catch on, even though the phrase Green New Deal came out of the labor left, led by Ann Pettifor, in 2008. That was the first use of the phrase over a decade ago. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. On the point about, you know, labor's atrophied base and of the labor movement more, more broadly. Do you think there's been a tendency to, to try and put all of our eggs in one basket in terms of the Labour Party? It's like we're kind of asking the Labour Party to do too many things and more, more things than it's ever possibly going to be able to do. It's supposed to be the, the centre of community organising. It's supposed to be the electoral vehicle. It's, it's, it's suggested it could be a, a site of producing uh, propaganda for our side. Do we need a, a much broader left than this and also one in which the unions are revivified? Because obviously they remain yeah. on the defensive, they remain, they remain weak. And in some ways it feels like a lot of stuff is just epiphenomenal to the weakness of the, of the unions. Yeah, there's there's a bunch of very important uh, issues you raised there. In terms of the balance of forces in the country, the continuing weakness of the unions as compared with the rise of the new labor left in the 1970s is the most important, of course, difference at a level that, of class analysis, absolutely. And on top of that, even in the 1970s, when union density was increasing, when there was an enormous amount of rank-and-file militancy, when women were joining the unions in droves through newly unionized sectors. When all of that was going on, the degree of union political education, political mobilization of the base was minimal. And Tony Benn, in the early 70s, used to go to union conferences and say that to them. Say, you know, do your children know what it is to be a trade unionist and why you're militant? Do your neighbors know? And they did very little to articulate the alternative economic strategy amongst their membership. So in the end, after a decade of trying to change the party, even the left-wing union leaders, which had supported Ben and supported the campaign for Labour Party democracy and voted for very radical resolutions at Labour Party conference, uh, some of them put by militant, in the end, when they saw that uh, their base had not at all been energized by any of this, because they hadn't done anything to energize them, they then ended up supporting Michael Foote and Kinnock in the attempt to hold the party together after the Social Democrats split off and, you know, moved away from their support for the labor left. This is a conceivable danger today as well. And yes, I think until there is something like momentum and the world transformed inside a union like Unite, the amount of change one can expect will be limited. I think that's a very, very good point. Having said that, I, by pointing to Momentum and the World Transformed, these are not uh, organizations that are within the Labor Party. They are very much attached to it. Their focus is oriented to it. But what has been remarkable about this development, unlike the Campaign for Labor Party Democracy back in the 1970s, was the number of people that have been mobilized and reached by momentum and by its offshoot, the world transformed. I mean, you know, I think the Campaign for Labor Party Democracy had something like a thousand members at its height and probably 40 to 50 activists 
even if one takes the 50,000 members with a grain of salt, not because there aren't that many members, but because how many activists are there, and let's say, you know, one's talking about 5 or 10% of that as real activists, you see the enormous difference in the number of people. Moreover, the world transformed is not only a remarkable development unheard of at Labour Party conferences in terms of the breadth and depth of discussion and culture that it brings to a Labour Party conference away from those very boring fringe meetings. But also it became oriented in the last year to trying to do political education throughout the year in a number of places around the country. So, you know, I think that those were very promising developments. They didn't go nearly far enough. But I think that they are a lot more than what one generally gets by way of, you know, shouldn't the movements be also counted on to do this. I think one needs to soberly say that while the movements are very good, very good and very necessary, and I mean that all the way from the anti-austerity protests to the more recent Extinction Rebellion ones, are very good at getting the media's attention in the streets, and even getting the state's attention to some extent in the streets. In terms of their capacity to do political education, in terms of their capacity to build a coherent core at the base, an organized core at the base, they are simply not good at this. And it's to be hoped, it was to be hoped, I don't think momentum nearly as far as it could have or should have, that the momentum will transform bridge between the movements and the party could have played that role. Although in the end, you know, we aren't going to get what we need until the party itself, with all of the resources it has, transforms itself so that the regional organizers are doing what the world transformed people want to do. And you know, one needs to be very clear and very sober about that. You know, when I go to Labour Party meetings in the last year, and this was as true in Oxford as it was in uh, Yorkshire, it is really remarkable the how limited the degree of political education is. And I was up in South Yorkshire, and even in the minor social, which is all that's left of, of the influence of the very left-wing miners' union culture in those communities, even in the minor social, you know, people play pool. One would hope that what the World Transform does with Ed Miliband with the pub quiz at every Labour Party conference well, why isn't that going on at the minor social in, in Doncaster North? You know, or why isn't he bringing Russell Brand in order to you know, entertain as well as politicize people in the constituency? So I'm not blaming Ed in particular. It's, it's the whole culture of the party is no longer oriented this way, if it ever was. I, don't, I have to be careful here because, you know, one shouldn't be romantic about what the Labour Party was, even when it was at its height in terms of membership support, say, in the late 1940s or early 1950s. Just going back to the unions for a second. So, I mean, in terms of the situation of the, of the unions, and, and, you know, they're still in sort of in, in relative uh, decline. We haven't seen, you know, industrial action is extremely, at an extremely low level. And 
although we've seen some evidence of new organising in, in the so-called gig economy, it still doesn't really feel like the unions have, have hit upon a way to improve their position. I mean, do you think that there's still a tendency of the unions to think that the model of organising that they had through the 20th century is still appropriate to our situation today? And if not, what, what do you think they should be doing? Well, you know, they've attempted, especially Unite, with their community branches to develop new ways of organizing. I don't think they put uh, nearly enough resources into this. And uh, that's not only true of Unite. It's true with the North American unions, like here, the auto workers in Canada, who try to do this as well. So, you know, and that partly has to do with union members resenting, you know, paying dues and the community units being oriented to organizing people who aren't paying dues or have little capacity. And that, But that's also to do with political education. It's something to do that you need to get down to the membership and tell them why this is so important. So this is hard. Obviously, the working class everywhere but especially in a country like Britain that has such a strong class identity. The working class is utterly transformed and not necessarily in a good way, a balkanized and all kinds of new occupations have emerged as others have declined. And that's obviously churned working class culture at a community level in a really quite violent way. This is not easy, in other words. And what one needs to be thinking about is working class formation again. People don't think of themselves as workers. They don't recognize themselves as workers automatically. This is something that grows out of organization, including political organization, and to a significant extent. You could say that the working class of the first half of the 20th century, or even the first three quarters of it, was actually formed by the parties in a dialectical way that emerged to secure their votes. And not just the unions, especially on the continent, where it was the parties that often seeded the unions. In Britain, of course, it was the unions that seeded the party. But the Labour Party played a very important role through the 20th century, creating class identity, not revolutionary class identity. It was always the kind of class identity that linked it to the national interest, to the British state, etc. And that's one of the problems with the Labour Party that didn't have this transformative image of the state as it was developing the working class. But this needs to happen again. And it seems to me that the remarkable thing that's happened, and I did not expect it, in of all places, the United States as well as Britain, of their emerging a radicalized, significant socialist left within the framework of the Labour Party and U.S. Democratic Party. One has to hope that out of this will come the capacity to do the type of organizing that reforms the working class in the very new conditions of the 21st century and with the very new types of workers that one's talking about. And, and I say that even, you know, when I was in Yorkshire, I could see that the guys who would have been miners are now working in warehouses or in call centers. 
more of the women who would have been miners' wives and are now working are working in the public sector or in the traditional service sector types of jobs that, that women have worked in. So, you know, even in those communities, the occupations are utterly transformed. And out the unions and the party playing a key role, once again, in, in working class formation, uh, I, I think we're in very big trouble. Now, that's, it, it's easy for me to say all that. Uh, discovering how to do this is you know, the really big challenge of the left in the 21st century. Saying something like this is only trying to get it on the agenda to say that, you know, there is, in my head, an organizing model of how to do this. No, there's not. But I'm not sure that there's enough effort, even on the part of, you know, radical socialists at the head of Unite, or on the part of radical socialists at the head of Momentum, on how to do this. But the crucial thing is that the commitment to doing that and developing the talent to do it, just as, you know, Momentum has developed so many people's talents in terms of using social media and canvassing in a way that is novel and, and, and successful. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you would like to hear the extended version of this interview, please consider supporting the show via Patreon. You can find the page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.